There are things that we absorb. There are things that we absorb, sort of inhale, uh, take in, things that we absorb that we naturally just assume to be true. It's quite natural, quite ordinary, nothing uh, bad necessarily about it. Uh, you know, it might depend on the culture in which you were brought up, uh, the priorities that were imputed to you. That's what you have absorbed. That's what you assume as you move on through life are the case. It might be more ordinary. It might just be, you know, what, what are the daily habits? What, do, what is just Monday through Friday look like? Uh, just the, the patterns, the, the how-tos of a certain task. You know, this is how you prepare this dish. This is how you maintain a car. This is how you take care of a lawn. This is what you do with a dog. I mean, whatever it may be, those things that you grew up with, those things that you absorbed, you assume to be true. But you oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the more you get, the further you get in life and the more people you meet and the more places you go, you begin to realize, you know, I think I need to revisit some of that. I think I need to rethink some of what I absorbed and now assume and have been assuming to just be true. A case in point, let's, let's get down into what we're going to be moving into in the next few minutes. Regarding prayers, if you grew up in a Christian home, no doubt, I would hope, no doubt, whether implicitly, explicitly, formally, or informally, in that home, mom and dad were teaching you, modeling for you something as to what prayer is, okay? Maybe you became a Christian in, in college, and it was a campus minister that took you aside and said, hey, this is what prayer is. is that it Maybe it was a chaplain uh, at a hospital or on post, whatever, whatever the case may be. And you learn some things along the way, and that was the pattern, that was the path, those were the priorities as far as prayer was concerned. And it may have been good. It may have been great. You may be ready to write a book. Maybe not. Sometimes those things we absorb and assume to be true really do need to be reexamined and rethought especially when you consider the stakes, especially when you consider what prayer is and how vital it is to the Christian life. We ought not to just assume anything. We'd rather go to the Scriptures and see what our Lord has to say to us. So with that, I would ask you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. Last week we were in 1 Thessalonians towards the end of, of that letter. Uh, here we're in, uh, today we're in 2 Thessalonians towards the beginning of that letter, and as I said last week, if you're trying to find it, first off, it's in the New Testament. Second off, it's in the midst of a, a series of T's. Uh, you have First and Second Thessalonians, First, Second Timothy, Titus. Uh, so it's it's not that hard to, to find. It's before Hebrews. That's a big book. Uh, it's it's after uh, the Gospels and after Acts. By now, you've probably found it. Second Thessalonians, chapter one. We're going to be reading verses three to twelve. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Hear now God's word. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, 
that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for your work in and through the Apostle Paul and his relationship with that church there in Thessalonica. Uh, thank you for this, uh, these series of letters and what we can learn through them. We pray that that, in fact, is exactly what would happen here now, that we would be learning in the deepest sense through them uh, because of your Spirit moving within our minds and hearts, opening our minds and hearts, changing our minds and hearts, moving us off of our assumptions, our preconceptions as to what prayer is and how we then are to pray. Um, we all we all come to the table with some ideas of these things, and not a one of us doesn't need some adjustments. And we need your help. We pray in your name. Amen. So if I may take you back, way back, actually before some of you were born, to a film, the original, Karate Kid, 1984. Not the remake. I'm talking about the original, okay? So those of you who don't know the story... Uh, those who have forgotten the story, here's a quick plot recap. Young Daniel has been taken by his mother to California, and for whatever reason, it really doesn't make any sense, but he's just immediately targeted by these bullies who are a part of a karate school, the Cobra Kai Dojo, uh, down the street, and he's the, the object of their disaffection. Well, fortunately for Daniel, he uh, is befriends Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi uh, is an unassuming repairman who also just happens to be a master in the martial arts. And Mr. Miyagi befriends Daniel, takes him under his wing, and decides to train him in a, in a shall I say, a kinder, gentler, but firm form of karate, and preparing him for this match competition with these thugs uh, from the Cobra Kai. Now, if you know anything about this film, if you've seen it, probably the only thing you remember is the rather odd regimen that Mr. Miyagi takes young Daniel through. He tells him to wax the car and to sand the floors and to paint the fence. And this goes on for hours. And young Daniel is aching, and finally he's just understandably just flustered. With, what does this have to do with karate and me not getting beaten up tomorrow? 
To which Mr. Miyagi responds and helps him to understand in a rather concrete way that he is teaching him the fundamentals of karate with those chores, the very fundamentals. He's teaching him defensive blocks through muscle memory in those chores, in the wax on, wax off, and in the uh, sanding of the floors and in the painting of the fence. Young Daniel is learning the fundamentals, or really one should say relearning. He's being retrained because, of course, he came in with some preconceptions, didn't he? We all do, even Daniel, as to what it would have to involve and what it had to be such that when he actually received some good, wise training, he didn't get it. He didn't understand it. He's not just being trained, he's being retrained. He is being reformed. He is relearning under the wise tutelage of Mr. Miyagi, which brings me to Paul and our text this morning and the topic of prayer. Paul, the apostle, is writing to this church that he planted just a few months before, this church in a city called Thessalonica. He's deeply concerned for them because of the pain and the persecution, the things that they are enduring that he himself suffered from even while he was there planning that church, and he is concerned for them. So he is writing these letters to counsel them, to advise them, to urge them on, spur them on, and he is praying for them, and he speaks to that very directly. Not just that he is praying for them, but how he is praying for them. And friends, we have so much to learn from what Paul says in terms of Uh, the ways that he prays for these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. We have so much to learn just from that in in these letters. Uh, The basic, I guess you could say, it it could be summed up this this way, the basic lesson, the insight would be along these lines. The fundamentals of prayer are not what we think. The fundamentals, yes, the very fundamentals of prayer are not what we think. And we need to let the Lord retrain us. We need to let the Lord retrain us. And as we look at this text, we, in terms of delving into the fundamentals, what do we see? We see two things. They're in your outline, two things, some things under those headings, but two things chiefly. First, what, what Paul knew to be true, what Paul knew to be true, and how then he prayed for others. So you have this huge what that then leads to the how. What Paul knew to be true, these huge things, great import, and how then he prayed for these other people. So let's, let's look at this together. First, uh, what Paul knew to be true. What was it that formed the foundation, the framework for how the grid, for how Paul uh, prayed, what he understood prayer even to be? Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. He begins with great thankfulness for the flourishing that he saw. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul is grateful to God, not grateful to them or himself, but grateful to God for the growing faith that he sees in these people. They are uh, maturing. The faith that they had at the point of their conversion is growing. It is maturing. They are not smugly satisfied and just settling for past successes and how, thing, how good things were in the past, but rather they are pressing on, striving on, growing, maturing in their faith. He's thankful for that. He's also thankful for their increasing love. 
And reading between the lines, it's quite clear that, he, that this love is not just love in the, in the church, not just love for those within that body who were like them, you know, voted the same way, members of the same clubs, drove the same cars. Oh, wait, that's a little anachronistic. But he, they, he lo- they love not just those who are like them, but those in the body who are not like them. Pretty extraordinary. Why? Because their loyalty, their chiefest, their chief loyalty is to Jesus, transcending all other loyalties. So you have these this thankful for growing faith, thankful for this increasing love, and thankful that they are persevering under trial, under duress, which is the greater context in which this growing faith and increasing love was taking place in the midst of duress, in the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution, of of um, resistance and antagonism from those around them. And Paul is deeply grateful of this growing faith and increasing love, especially given that context. This is why Paul is thankful. It's why he begins as he does in verses 3 and 4. And it's worth just pausing, a quick pause at this point, noting what Paul is grateful for. Because the things that we are grateful for, the things that we are thankful for, reveal our greatest, deepest priorities, dreams, and hopes, and aspirations. Does that, that make sense, doesn't it? The thing you are the most thankful for, most grateful for, reveals that which you most want. What does Paul most want? The flourishing of the faith of these people. So his heart is full. His heart is full with the news of what's happening there in Thessalonica. Well, mention of persecution takes them to their persecutors, as far as the subject goes. Mention of their afflictions takes him to then thinking about those who are afflicting them. And that's where you see the shift from just thankfulness, not just, but from thankfulness in their flourishing, but to confidence in where it's ultimately going to happen, the final outcome of all things. It takes us to verses 5 through 10. Um, so let's take a look at that now. This is evidence, so this being what he has just said, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to re- grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. There's a lot here. There's probably a series of sermons you really could preach out of verses 5 through 10. Um, but this is only one point I'm going to try and make as pertaining to how Paul is praying and the encouragement that he's giving his readers that he himself felt uh, regarding them. Two, two themes, I guess, you can see under this confidence in the final outcome, as you see in verses 5 through 10. The one is retribution towards the enemies of God and vindication of his people. Two huge themes that you see here in verses 5 through 10. So Paul is speaking of the coming judgment, the coming judgment, that final day. When will that be? Jesus' return, the great unveiling where he will be seen as he truly is by all mankind. 
Who will be feeling this judgment? All those, Paul says it here, all those who walk, who live in unbelief, who have rejected the gospel. The apostle is saying very, very plainly here in this passage. And uh, what is it that they will experience? Eternal destruction, exclusion from the presence of the living God, and given that he is the source of all life and existence, therein to be excluded from him is to experience destruction. But not, uh, uh, not an annihilation, but an eternal everlasting destruction. This is quite terrifying, and it's intended to be. An everlasting separation from the living God. If a disintegration, an eternal everlasting coming apart Because in this life, having turned the back towards the source of life, in essence, the Lord is giving us what we want. You don't want me? You want to be apart from me? You want to be left alone? For eternity, I will give you what you want. And you've heard me say sometimes the worst thing God can do is give you what you want. And this is a, the ultimate tragic case example of that. Okay, that's the first theme, the retribution. The second is the vindication. Now, both parts are intended to encourage Paul's readers because, of course, they are feeling the weight, the pressure, the, the persecution, the opposition, and they're wondering, how long, O Lord Jesus, are you just? Do you love us? So you see how it has to be answered in this way, both sides, the retribution and the vindication. Verse 10 is where you see especially that vindication. Let me read that to you again. When he, it's Jesus, comes on that day to be glorified in the saints, in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, chiefly, this is about the glorification of, of Christ, where he will be finally fully seen in his power, in his might, in his mercy, in his justice, in the wonder of just who he is seen fully, finally. Um, unfettered praise, finally, that has been eternally due to him, finally given to him, okay? It's chiefly about the glorification of Christ, but you have to note here, it is also about the glorification of his people the glorification of his followers, of his disciples. It's why Paul says, so the first thing, glorification of Christ, is you see when it says, to be marveled at among all who have believed, but the glorification of his followers, of the saints, is glorified in his saints. Now, prepositions are important. Words are important. Paul does not say here, glorified among the saints, by the saints, through the saints, but in the saints. Okay? Words matter. As a quote here in your quotes and notes from John Stott. It's that long one, the second one, where he's, he's speaking directly on this point, and it's very, very helpful what Stott says. I'll read it to you. So how will the coming Lord Jesus be glorified in relation to his people? Not among them, as if they will be the theater or stadium in which he appears, nor by them, as if they will be the spectators, the audience who watch and worship, nor through or by means of them, as if they will be mirrors which reflect his image and glory, but rather in them, as if they will be a filament which itself glows with light and heat when the electric current passes through it. 
The distinction between these models is important. A theater is not changed by the play, which is performed in it. An audience is not necessarily moved by the drama enacted before it. A mirror is certainly not affected by the images it reflects, but a filament is changed. For when the current is switched on, it becomes incandescent. So when Jesus is revealed in his glory, he will be glorified in his people. We will not only see but share his glory. We will be more than a filament which glows temporarily, only to become dark and cold again when the current is switched off. We will be radically and permanently changed, being transformed into his likeness. And in our transformation, his glory will be seen in us, for we will glow forever with the glory of Christ, as indeed he, show, he glowed with the glory of his Father. Whew. That's amazing. But that's what Paul's getting at here. That's what Paul is, is getting at here. You see how Paul is writing here with a sense of anticipation. As, as, as what he knows to be true fills him with a sense of anticipation. First, anticipation in the present of Jesus' working in the midst and in the hearts and in the lives of his people. He expects that. He, he looks for that. He longs for that. So there's a sense of anticipation given who Jesus is and what his promises are to change us and to work in and through us. He anticipates that, and he's thankful for when he sees it. But not just, present, not just a, that sense of um, an, anticipating something as far as Jesus is working, but anticipating something as far as Jesus is coming. Paul is anticipating that too. And not just something in the present, but this would be something future because we're assured of it. Jesus has said, I'm coming back. And that assures those who hear that promise and emboldens them as well when we really hear it. It's what you hear in, in, in Paul's words here, this sense of anticipation. It's pretty extraordinary. And what he's saying here is this sense of anticipation of his present working and his future coming should shape and inform the way we pray. what we look for, what we long for, radically shape and reshape the way that we pray. I don't know if you journal your prayers, but it might be an interesting exercise to take that truism and now go back and reread how you've prayed over the last week. Or just your default. Is 1 Corinthians 1, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1, is, is that the grid? Is that the grid? We'll get to that point, come back to that in just a little while. But the main thing being that the fundamentals of prayer, and Paul is showing us here, are not what we think. And we need to let the Lord retrain us. We just see that in what Paul knows to be true. But in the second, I think this is the second point, how he then prays for others. So verses 11 and 12, that gets you to actually where he's not just talking about prayer, but he's actually recording something of how he prays and so there we read verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important to note, he says, to this end. That's how he starts verse 11. He says, to this end. Or you could say, with all... With all that in mind, meaning every, with everything that I've said in mind, 
here is then how you should pray. Okay? So that then takes you to the petitions and the ultimate goals of these petitions. There's basically two, two things he's asking for, two things he's longing for here, pleading for the Lord on behalf of these people. The first is that they would be made worthy. You see that in verse 11, that they would be made worthy. Now, it's interesting, if you go back and read in verse 5, basically he says they're already worthy. He's saying that their endurance under fire, under duress, their perseverance in the midst of persecution is showing that they're already worthy. They are already, God's hand is already on them. It's a, what they are demonstrating is a demonstration of God's affection and commitment to them already. The fact that they are persevering, it's not making them worthy. It's showing that they're already worthy. So that's what he's saying in verse 5. You're, you, are the, you are already worthy. But now I'm saying, now I'm praying that you'll be made worthy. What? That's verse 11. And the idea seems to be that what he's after, what he longs for, is to see the gap closed. The gap closed between the, how we are named as saints, as the holy ones, as the set-apart ones, and actually living that way. That having been named as his own, but actually living that way. It's what, who we are, being who we are, in essence, is what Paul is, is asking for, pleading for with the Lord. Oh, would they be, would we be who we are, become more of who we are, that the worthy, the worthy ones would become worthy. That's the first prayer, the first petition. The second is for God's working, for God's working. And that stands to reason given the fact that he's at work in the midst of these people, changing their hearts, changing their lives, changing their affections, changing their goals, changing their aspirations. And that's great, but good intentions and committed sacrificial endeavors are nothing and absolutely empty without the working of God's power. Absolutely nothing. It will go nowhere. A few weeks ago, uh, we had a, a bulb burn out in our, in our kitchen over the, the sink. It was one of those just old-style fluorescent, I don't know, is, that, is it a bulb? Is it a rod? I don't know what that is. But, so I bought a replacement, and I spent a little extra. It was one of these um, highly efficient, long-lasting bulb, rod, whatever you want to call it. I, I said to Sarah when I put it in, I think this thing's going to last longer than we are. Now, I ask you, if I had just left it on the counter, how much light it would have given off in the kitchen? It's a great bulb, right? Very well designed. It's supposed to last a long time. It'll last a long time laying on that counter. How much light? No light. Why no light? No power. No power, no light. You see? It's the same with us. No power, no light. No power, no light. We have to be praying for the Lord's working. Without his working, there will be nothing. Those are the petitions, that we would be made worthy, that's what Paul says here, and for also God's working. But grand and great as those petitions are, they are actually meant to serve two ultimate goals that are even greater than those petitions. And again, the language here is used of glorification. But in this case, shifting not from the climactic final day 
but to the ordinary everyday so that Jesus would be glorified as he is working, as we are being, as the worthy ones are being made worthy, he would loom larger in our sight. Not that he is getting larger, but just we're coming to see who he is better and more clearly. In that sense, he will be glorified, becoming weightier in our eyes, in our lives, such that we would be trusting him more, obeying him more, praising him more, uh, worshiping him more. So the glorification of Jesus and the glorification of his disciples as well. Again, as this working is taking place, as the worthy ones are being made worthy, that there's this work of renewal taking place from the inside out, becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more like Jesus, slowly but surely over, over time. And this is what Paul is longing for. This is what he's praying for. These are his petitions. These are his goals. This is how he prayed for a church that's undergoing great suffering and duress. And did you know what he didn't pray? Let me read you the last quote in your quotes and notes, Tim Keller's book on prayer. It is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. He's right. He's right. You know Paul's perspective. You see the path of prayer. You see his priorities. Now, how do we pray? How do I pray? How do you pray? As a parent, as parents, we pray for the happiness and health, the success and satisfaction of our children. That's usually about as far as it goes. In our community groups, we pray for one another, you know, stress at work or difficult decisions or Aunt Petunia's ingrown toenails. which for her is a big deal. For myself, and you pray this way for yourself, you know what one of the most frequent prayers is? Get me the heck out of this. You know, whatever it is, you know, fix it. Fix it. Now, I'm not saying, and Paul's not saying for a moment, that it's wrong to pray such prayers. That's not the point. The point is the order. The point is the grid. Do we have a 2 Thessalonians 1 grid upon those things such that Jesus' honor is a bigger deal to us than our comfort? That his purposes, his eternal purposes fleshing themselves out in our lives would be our greatest delight. That that our hearts would be changed in the midst of our circumstances is actually more important to us than the pain of the circumstances themselves. That's a Second Thessalonians 1 grid. And you see how, again, we, we just have to come back to this fundamental reality that the fundamentals of prayer are not what we think, right? When you think of how we normally pray, the fundamentals of prayer are not what we think is we need, really do need to let the Lord retrain us here. Not just train, because we're already praying. <laughs> we're just not praying very well. We need to be retrained. Let's think about the heroic journey for a moment. This is something that's been written a lot about in recent decades. It began with Joseph Campbell back in the 1940s, the heroic journey. What is that? All the great stories, all the great myths basically go the same way. It's one template where you have a hero, usually an unlikely hero, man or woman, 
who is given a, a task. They're put on a quest of some kind, and there are great obstacles, whether outer or inner or both. There is a, a time or a moment of self-discovery and eventually an accomplishment of the task, the quest, whatever that may be. All the great tales, all the great myths, ancient, modern, yep, that's why they endure, because they have these things in common. Oh, I've left one out. The guide, the mentor, without whom the hero has no hope of being able to accomplish the task. Uh, Arthur had Merlin, right? Frodo has Gandalf. Luke has Obi-Wan and Yoda. Harry has Dumbledore. What's the commonality? The experienced guide, the wise mentor who takes them through. Now, don't dismiss this out of hand. There's a, again, there's a reason these stories last and endure, and the reason that they have the impact upon all cultures that they do. The reason is, is that, that that template is actually a reflection, an echo of the great true story, the one true myth, as C.S. Lewis said. Jesus and his coming for us, the, the hero of the heroes. Now, in this story, he's actually both the hero, it's rather interesting, he's both the hero and the mentor and the guide. He is the mentor and the guide you are looking for in life and in general and in the spiritual life in particular. And here is his posture towards us this morning. I have shown you what is true. I have shown you what reality is and how you can be made right with my Father. Now, I want to show you how to lay hold of that. I want to show you how to live out of that. I want to show you how to pray. This is Jesus' posture towards his people. I want to show you how to pray. I want to be your mentor. I want to be your guide. And we desperately need that. Desperately need that. When we understand, again, that the fundamentals of prayer are not what we think. And we need him to retrain us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand right side by side with your disciples as they, pray, as they asked you, teach us to pray. They knew something. They knew something, not everything, nor do we. They knew something of their need. They could see how devoted you were spending time alone with your Father in prayer, such as your devotion to Him. They could see your dependency upon such time in prayer, your dependency, your leaning into the Spirit with all that you are. They could see. So would you make that our prayer this morning? Make us open to instruction, yours to challenge yours, to be able to grasp the model, the teaching, the change. Oh, would you make the changes that need to be made in us, however you deem fit. Lord Jesus, would you please teach us to pray? And we ask this in your name.